Welcome to the Fan Engagement Chat, the episode of the Fan Engagement Pod where we hear about someone's approach to fan engagement. Recorded in January 2021, this interview is a conversation with US football, that's soccer to our stateside listeners, activist Paul Cox. Paul, who these days lives in Valencia in Spain, has been a fan of Seattle Sounders over on the US West Coast for years and has been involved for some years in various fan groups at his club, including the Seattle Sounders Fan Alliance, where he was chair for a period. Paul tells us a bit about how influence and activism works there, how it affects the game in the States in general, his views on opposition versus constructive dialogue, the early attempts to form a national organisation for fans and activists in the country, and also the challenges of growing the sport in a country where three others are in immediate competition for eyeballs. Don't forget you can find out how your club did in the Fan Engagement Index at fanengagement.net. You can also register for free for the Fan Engagement Hub if you want to access more detailed data and case studies from the 2019-2020 index. And don't forget, please like, subscribe and share. I know I keep going on about it, but it really does help the visibility of the podcast. Enjoy the show. We had a little chat before this started. I suppose the reason I wanted to talk to you is because it's always fascinated me. It's fascinated me on and off since, well, since we started at Supporters Vet, since when I was there, since we started getting um, inquiries from people in the States um, about what was going on in our game, through what we were doing, whether there were things we could do at times to help them. Um, and you know, there might be some. I, I'm not even, I'm not sure whether there was any contact between um, yourself and um, either SD Europe or Supporters Direct, but knowing that you obviously set set something up in the States over in Seattle, um, you know, you, this is this has been a, a something that I've been fascinated by, and looking as well at the growth, the way that football's developed in the States. Um, is fascinating also because you seem to be, it, it seems as though there is now essentially a kind of model of a football club, which is what I mean by that is the culture that people now appreciate that when you have a football club, there's something about a fan culture you have to have. And if you don't have it, it doesn't really work. Right. So right. tell me a bit about, you know, tell me a bit about fan culture in the States and how, because I, I think you've probably taken a lot from South America and Europe. You've seen that and you've gone, but that's obviously what football is then. Right. So we're going to do it like that too. Yeah. You know, obviously the U S being uh, an immigrant nation, uh, um, a little bit strange in that it was both colony and then a colonizer because we had colonies around the world. Uh, but we've had people move to the U.S. from from everywhere. My wife is originally from South America, although she moved to the States in her early teens, well, well before I met her. Um, but yeah, football culture in the U.S. Uh, and I, I apologize in advance right now to all your European listeners. I'm going to call it soccer at least a half a dozen times during this conversation. And I hope that's not like nails on a chalkboard to everybody's ears. But uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I'll try not to slip up too much. Uh, but yeah, we've pulled in a lot of things. Uh, our, our, our footballing culture in the U.S., I think a couple of things were key to changing it in through the early 2000s. 
which was, uh, first of all, the league managed to survive. Uh, MLS barely made it um, through the early 2000s. At one point, it was functionally bankrupt, and the, the, there was only three owners, and they threw more money in, and, and thank God they did, because it was exactly the right time, and, and since then, it grew. But like, if you look at my, my, my club, the Seattle Sounders, and our, our supporters culture, our ultras group, if you will, we have guys from all over the place. We have guys from Eastern Europe. We have guys from uh, Italy. We have German influence. One of the one of the godfathers of our group was a was a Finnish guy um, who uh, wound up helping to form uh, a Phoenix club, rising from the ashes in in Tampere, uh, uh, Finland. Um, when when their club got wrapped up with some gambling or some i don't know sketchy it's a case case i remember when i was at sd europe yeah 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 temporary united so so you know we had this all these different influences and at the same time through the early 2000s social media was exploding youtube was exploding and and people could see and draw on what they liked and what they didn't like and then they also threw in you know it's a very american sort of an experience and so now uh, in the early 2000s and or 2010s, uh, you know, my group that we formed, which was an alliance for a fan alliance for the whole fan group, all, all of the fans of the Sounders. Uh, in addition, I was a member of the Ultras group. Um, we did come to Supporters Direct and, and they were uh, crucial. I guess I should say you guys were crucial because it was just overlapping your time there. Um, met with Nave and, 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 and Ben at one point. Uh, I was on vacation. I was on holiday and I made time to swing uh, into London and, and sat down with them and got great tips on how to form our supporters trust. So yeah, we, we you know, it's a little bit of influence from all over. It's very Americanized, but at the same time, a very globalized culture. If that makes Tell sense. me one, one thing that's interesting is there's um, setting aside um, uh, the the sort of specifics of it. I don't want to get too deep into the criticisms of English football. One of the things that fans will criticise clubs for doing or not doing enough of is, um, you know, they'll, they'll be accused of, well, look, you treat us like customers. I, I have to say, I, I don't think that's always been the issue i think there's been a lot of failure to treat fans even as customers in some cases um so even that doesn't necessarily always work it's got a lot better in the last few years but one of the things when you look at american sport and i don't know if this applies to you know there's obviously um to annoy your american listeners i'm going to call it gridiron um you know basketball and ice hockey you're sort of if you like traditional sports or at least the ones that are professional um, rather than, you know, just because obviously football, soccer has always been very participatory at, at, at some level, that they've always kind of got at least the notion of you've got to treat fans well when they come to, to watch you. From what I can see from the outside, and I might be naive, is that something you say you've got a, obviously a peculiarly American um, flavour to your, to your fan culture? In terms of the engagement, in terms of fan engagement at the front end level, the fan experience stuff, if you want, is that is that in, in soccer, in football in America, is that very similar to how it's delivered elsewhere? Or is it is it sort of uniquely football? No, I think I think 
that's a pretty good observation. I think that I think that fans have uh, in the U.S. have a certain expectation of how they'll be treated when they arrive, and it's funny because I think when 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 people say, "Oh, you just treat me as a customer," they they don't really mean that they they are being treated as customer they're being treated as though they were not valued if that makes sense yeah? yeah so so uh they 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 feel like oh you're just taking it for granted you're taking me for granted all you want is me to show up open my wallet and then leave and not cause much of a fuss uh in the states soccer uh, football uh is probably the most um, active in its fans speaking up. I think that's one thing that we've definitely drawn from, from around the world is uh, there's something about football that, that creates that bond between, between the fan and the club, between the supporter and the club, um, whether it be the players or just the notion of a club, it's my club. Um, but yes, I think that, I think that soccer it does follow like the other, uh, the other sports. It's a little bit different when it comes to, to a match though, isn't it? Because uh, an American baseball game lasts three, three and a half hours. I think the average game lasts a little, it was pushing up around three hours. They've been trying to cut that down a little bit due to short attention spans and uh, the screen generation. Um, whereas, you know, at a football match, you can do the whole thing in two hours or less, right? If you mm. show up, walk in 10 minutes before kick, you got a 15 minute half, 90 minutes uh, uh, of, of action, plus a little uh, uh, added time and, and you're done in, in yeah. uh, you know, two, an hour and 45 minutes. So two hours and you can be in and out. And the culture of soccer instead has more to do with the pre and post game. And I think that's one thing that in America we have not clued into very well. And I think that everybody's struggling with it. I think they're struggling with it in Europe as well. Mm. And the clubs that have done a good job of trying to build more of a culture of a club, I think they're, they're, they're providing their fans with a better experience. I really do. Rather than just come in, sit down, watch the game, leave. Yeah. That's the bit. I mean, you've, you've, you've nailed the, the thing about the customer, not customer. It's the, it's being the, it's the being valued thing. Yeah. So, 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 you know, that, that thing, that issue of the speed of football, um, trying to get, I mean, you know, I, I remember speaking to someone a while back, a, a club about, um, someone coming up idea with ideas about trying to keep fans in the stadium and trying to get them to, you know, uh, you know, more discretionary spend out of them at, at the ground and, you know, entertainment and things like that. Um, and I sort of get why you'd want to, but the problem, of course, is why do you want to stand in a concourse, listen to a band playing? That was one of the ideas. Listen to a band playing for 20 minutes, half an hour. You want to chat with your mates. Right. Um, I think if you're gonna <clears throat> if you're gonna do it, it's got to play to the strengths of the fan culture you've got. The fan fan culture we've got, uh, at, at, you know, at the club I support might be different from others, but a lot of it tends tends to hang around the pub. Or a sort of collective meeting of people. Beer tends to be beer tends to flow. The Germans uh, are, are like that, but um, I can't say I've been to enough games in Germany. But you know, the bar there'll be bars. It'll be bars and things like that. You know, maybe maybe the thing to do is to is to ensure you've got a decent kind of pub in your ground. That, that, that culture, don't worry. Um, 
um, that culture um, that you that you've got the expectation that you're treated well when you go to the stadium. Um, do you think that increases the sort of expectations of fans, given the given the fact you're layering that on top, you're layering these different cultures on top of each other? I'm treated well when I come to this stadium. Do you think that plays any role in whether or not people feel a sort of that sense of ownership you do with a club and that therefore I should expect to have influence over it? That's that being, if you like, the South American or or European layer of member, you know, member involvement, member ownership, fan involvement. Do, do, do they interact or are they just completely irrelevant? No, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think that through most of the US they do not interact. I think that there's there's a significant number of people who just expect a decent experience. You know, they want the uh, the rap on Americans is that we smile too much. <laughs> they want the, the the usher to smile and greet them as they check their ticket and they come in, and they want the the steward to to to, to be friendly and help them find their seat if they don't know where they're going. Um, I think that in Seattle, one of the things that having a fan association with some sense of ownership, and in fact, we, we negotiated, a, um, we called it a charter that the, that the club gave to this group, and they chartered that group with being the official representative of the fans. Um, what went with that was that that group has um, ownership over some of the issues and input. And one of the things that we started doing um, when I was the president of the council of that group was we had monthly meetings of the board uh, and, and every month we would pull in a different person from the club to come in and talk about the concessions or the game experience, what's on the, the big screens and, you know, the, 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 the kids from stuff that they put on <laughs> um, the ticketing manager. Well, you know, why, why are we using the ticketing system that we are, or, or why is the, why, why are things set up the way they are? And, 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 that was a big, big part of Seattle's success, right? In, in doing that, because it showed the fans, not only do we value you as customers, we're going to try to treat you well when you show up for a, for a match, but we want to hear what your observations are of us and we want to try to work on it. And if it's something that we can't do, because, you know, we all know that fans have very big expectations. We would all love for our club to go out and, and, you know, buy messy if we could, uh, uh, but we can't, we don't, we don't have the money for that. Um, and there's times when the club's going to say, look, these are things we can do. And these are the things we can't do. And so I think that, I think that in Seattle, they did a much better job of that. And that woke up a lot of the rest and, and not exclusively us, of course, there's other, other clubs that did that, but, but building that more tight sort of, uh, input, um, helped football in America grow faster through the 2000s than some of the other sports. And now it's come back around where those other sports are coming to football and are saying, what are you guys doing differently besides just the usher smiles when he takes your ticket and you get shown a decent time and the restrooms are clean and, and, you know, uh, that sort of a thing. Does, does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's yeah. the interesting thing about this is that um, we're talking about you know, a sort of a, a relatively, you know, I remember the the, the, the first days of the, uh, well, the first days, you know, the, the, the late 1970s, the 1970s and early 80s, 
when the old North American Soccer League was was, was importing um, people who played. I mean, I think there were even some people who, there was one case, I think with Dundee United played as a different team. I think it was Dundee United, ended up playing under a different name in a, in a season in a US soccer competition, football competition. Mm-hmm. And it was it was almost like they 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 were sort of recreating the Harlem Globe trotters or something. It wasn't a it, it wasn't a sort of foot, a, a sport on its own footing. And the interesting thing is, what you the, in 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 looking at how you create uh, an image and a, a football of your a, I don't want to say brand because it's not a brand. You know, a culture and an industry, a football industry, a football sector of your own. A number of clubs have actually looked at supporter involvement, and you know, by that, you know, um, you know, fa- fan engagement um, at the sort of strategic level of of actually sitting down, and listening to fans, getting input, and at some level, certainly potentially some ownership of of the club in some cases and things like that, and said, actually, that's a really good way of understanding how what they want out of this, and it maybe it doesn't happen in basketball and. Um, you know, American football outside of um, I've forgotten who it is that's um, that's that's, that's uh, Green Bay, Green Bay Packers, Packers are a fan yeah. yeah, or in baseball. Eh? The reason it doesn't because you know those are your old historic sports. What you've had to do is to look at having to build something from the ground up, and so perhaps for you it's absolutely logical, albeit after a number of tries, number of attempts, it's perfectly logical that you would do this, as opposed to you know the 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 older, much older football cultures, where, albeit that at the very start they were member owned in the in England, now they've been predominantly privately owned for a long, long time. So you're trying to bring that concept of listening and engagement and active, structured relationships into a football culture that just it it sort of it almost can't help but be tin eared. Right. Do you know what right. I mean? It can't, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that, and you know, there's different versions of it as we look around Europe. Uh, there's different versions of, of culture anyways. You know, you've got the Swedish German model where the clubs are 51% or more owned, although that's kind of morphed over the years as these professional corporations, you know, manage the football side of things. And um, although in theory, they're still owned by the clubs. And then you know, you've here in Spain where I live, you've only got a couple of clubs that are that are truly fan owned, and the rest are, you know, the, the like so many places there. Uh, I don't want to say playthings of rich people, but but you know that same sort of. I mean, heaven knows in the UK we've seen plenty of of rich guys come in and screw up a club, and then you know because they they think they know what they're doing and they leave. But I think one thing that you have in the UK is there is a certain expectation of responsiveness to the fans. And I think there's a certain expectation um, that the board of a club be at least somewhat willing to try to be independent and, 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 and speak for the fans at least a little bit. And I, we don't have that in America. In America, we have, a, you know, it's either a corporate or usually it's a really rich guy that's that's investor several rich people that have invested in a club um so instead the fans have had to organize on their own and the smart clubs don't shut the doors to those fans the smart clubs open the doors and say come on in let's let's talk about this 
Whereas a lot of the clubs, these, oh, we're fine. We're, we're doing okay. But the ones that have been doing that are the ones that are, are, have been left behind. They were the but, original MLS clubs. Right. So this isn't, this isn't a case of here's, here's uh, what, what a progressive um, game looks like. This is, this is kind of, well, I mean, I suppose in some senses it's going through change. You, you've kind of got a series of challenges, you know, almost literally on the pitch challenges, obviously. Um, challenging the older order saying actually if you want you know by their actions if you want to do this the right way then take some of the lessons um, uh, heed some of the lessons from what works in say countries like you know at least picking elements of what works in somewhere like Germany without having to trans transpose the entire model on and say it's going to be for them absolutely and say and say and and perhaps also look at um, uh, uh, English football and its struggles to try to move away from what I would call oppositionalism, mm-hmm. which tends to be the way that relationships have traditionally gone in the, in the last sort of thirty to forty years. Is we've had it's always been a matter of opposing something, opposing you know opposing ID cards, opposing unsafe grounds, opposing ticket price rises, opposing you know. Uh, to, uh, um, a poor ownership that's that's seen clubs nearly destroyed you know as as they were you know particularly were in the sort of early 2000s the the, the route that's sort of really interesting is to see because it's easy to say look club do more listening they've got to find the time they've got the people to do it they've got the willingness to do it but also on the fan side so the thing that you were talking about the fans organizing themselves as well Right, um, and the smart clubs let them in. I it, it often falls to me to it used to often fall to me to remind activists who wanted to get somewhere and wanted their clubs to listen to say you do realise you have a responsibility to do this properly as well, and you can't shout from the rooftops anymore. You right. can do it if it's necessary, but most of the time, if you've got a door open and people willing to listen to you, it shouldn't be necessary any, any anymore. Now, oppositionism's never really, does it not really happen very much in the States? Are there the old MLS clubs that you mentioned, the older, you know, where where they perhaps sort of eschewed that approach? Have fans then organised and got very angry or is it just sort of nothing's really changed and things have petered out? No, and even in even in the the the, the modern, more modern or recent clubs that have come in, and, and it's funny because I, I think of my own, you know, I think of Seattle as being one of the newer clubs, but we're not anymore. We've been around for more than half the time the league's been around. So I guess that makes us not quite senior citizen status, but even in, even in those places, you know, we've had oppositional sorts of things. Uh, last summer, they had opposition and, and fan protests and, um, silence at the beginning part of the game and in, in, in our biggest uh, derby matches, right. In, in between Seattle and Portland. Um, not last summer, the summer before I, let's just pretend a 2020 never happened. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and that was over fan protests, uh, the, particularly the supporter groups, the ultras groups over what sort of, um, human rights issues they were allowed to argue for and not argue for. Let's put it that way. Uh, there was, there was anti-fascist um, symbology being used. MLS, uh, which is, you know, very conservative if they can in their approach to things said, no, you can't do that. And so then that of course invited the oppositional sort of a thing you were talking about. 
But the way it got solved was when they opened the door and sat down and started talking to each other and listening to each other. Um, and I do think that that everybody is slowly but surely uh, across all sports in the U.S. are waking up to that to that idea that that you're better off with that. It was one of my my uh, goals in forming the alliance uh, council and, and building the alliance up as a fan group was look, we need to behave responsibly. Like you said, we need to be activists, but at the same time, uh, we can't be angry activists. We have to be willing to work with the club. And our goal was to demonstrate to our owner and by extension, all of the owners throughout MLS that this is the better way to go. And in the long run, it will pay you more dividends. And if you look at our growth, you know, when the Sounders started, they planned on selling around 20, 25,000 tickets a game because we play in an NFL stadium that's got 69,000 seats. So they, they limited it to the lower bowl. They had some of the end uh, sections, some of the stands in the end blocked off. And by the second year, they were selling over 30,000 tickets a game because they just had so much demand and because we built this fan culture. And so I feel like it was a very good demonstration in real time that if you do these things right and do the sort of fan engagement that you're talking about, uh, it'll work, it'll work. And, and in the long run, the reason Mr. Owner that you wanna do this is because you're gonna make more money. Your club's gonna be worth more money because you're more successful because you're selling more tickets, you have more dedicated fans, you have more engaged fans. You're, 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 you've built a better culture. So um, a couple more questions. And one, one is how many, are you, are you aware of how many sort of active supporters groups there are at, um, in, in, um, uh, in American football, in America, so American soccer, we'll have to call it soccer. Um, in, in the, well, I mean, it's not the top division in the same sense as we say the top division, the elite division. Sure. Does everyone have, does every, club have a group oh yeah yeah something like uh, and what do they, are they mostly ultras groups or are they, are they, are they is there a spattering of groups more like the sort of supporters trust community trust organizations that you, see, that you help to form or? right there's there's kind of a blend um most every every team has every club has at least one supporters group and and they are more modeled more on ultras groups they're not Dutch ultras that need a moat. <laughs> They're not uh, <laughs> separating them from the, from the pitch. <laughs> you know, we don't have the, I, I remember years ago when I, I, I really described in that way, Paul, but it's a good one. I like. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm not bagging on it. Cause I've, I've had a great experience in Rotterdam and in and, and, and Amsterdam. And um, somehow I fell in with, with uh, ultras in Nuremberg in Germany. And uh, it's kind of a long story, but I, I go to a game with them and we go to an away match. And of course we're in behind the, the big fences and the guys come in with their big bags of TIFO and they've got the flags and the banners and giant rolls of tape. And they immediately pull out the duct tape and start taping the, it's not barbed wire, but it's like a spiky top metal top to the fence, to the plexiglass fence to try to keep them from climbing up on it. Of course, they bring giant rolls of tape and tape it over and climb up on it anyway. And, and one guy opens a duffel bag and he's, he pulls out a baggie that's, that's like a gallon baggie just full of weed and immediately starts rolling giant bomber joints. And I'm like, wow, this is nothing like what we would have in the United States. <laughs> 
for, for that type of culture. <coughs> we don't have an ultras culture close to that. Um, but every team has at least a few ultras groups and some of them are more community oriented and they maybe run a nonprofit. Some of them are a little bit more aggressive. Some of them just want to get together and drink and, and go to games. Um, our, our rivals, our, our closest rivals to Seattle and Portland, um, they've formed um, a more of a blended group. So they're, they're, they have one umbrella group that, that, that's, uh, has a board and, and legal corporation and the whole nine yards, but they also run the ultras. In Seattle, we're split. We have an ultras group, um, Emerald City Supporters, which I'm in. Uh, and then we had the, the Alliance. So the, the different, like I said earlier, the different models that are growing in different clubs, everybody's trying something a little bit different. Um, some cool. of them, they have, yeah. they'll have a scattering of a dozen groups. Each, each group has anywhere from eight to 30 people in it. And they've thrown them all together in one big section. And so they have to get along. Um, and you mentioned um, in that conversation, you said to me that other US sports are approaching soccer football clubs, um, asking what they're doing. That's that's right. Is there any sense of a sort of um, a fan culture that's that's anything like what's going on in football, in soccer in America? Is 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 that is 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 American football? baseball basketball remaining resolutely as they are um, and I can't confess to know enough about them I need to you know I need to read a bit more and, and look a bit read a bit more and, and, and speak to more people about what goes on in those sports but is there any kind of transposing of what's going on in football soccer to to US you know to the other US sports the traditional US sports yeah I think so we've had some we've had some crisscross on that um after a few years in Seattle, we had uh, uh, visitors um, while the NBA was, was having a, a labor issue. So they, while they were on hold, um, their executives had a little extra time and they came out and they said, what is it that you're doing that's so different? And they took some ideas back to try and, and form uh, more of a, not quite a, not, not really a football culture there, but take some of the better things that maybe would translate to, to basketball. Um, in, in Seattle, in my city, uh, many of the people that are working at the um, uh, working at the the new NHL club, uh, the the Kraken, the Seattle Kraken is the, is the club's name, are alumni. They they cut their teeth working for the Sounders, so they already have a supporters group and the club is giving some aid and some help to the supporters group and has an open door policy because they lived the experience at the Sounders in football. And now that they're starting up a, an NHL team, which is a, you know, several hundred million dollar proposition for them. Uh, they're taking those better lessons learned and, and it is crossing over a little bit. Um, there is an, an informal supporters group that started in Seattle um, for baseball. And so the people gathered in one section and they, they, one of the things that's facilitated all of this of course is social media. It's gotten so much easier to find like-minded people and band together as a group and form your own fan association. And then you can go to the club or go to the team and say, you know, it's not just six yahoos who, who all like to drink beer and went to high school together. It's, Hey, I've got a group of 40 people in my town. I've got a group of 75 people. I've got 400 people spread throughout the area, but we all want to sit in one section. Can you work that out? Boom. Now you have a supporters group. 
Interesting. Yeah, so they don't just, call it that necessarily, but that's what it no, is. So it's basically the same thing. And then fi- finally, just in terms of where things are going in, t- in terms of the sort of way fans have organised themselves and that kind of thing, you mentioned before we started, there's a sort of um, a, a group that sort of represents the ultra culture, mm-hmm. such as it is in the States. Is there any move towards a kind of national organisation that can actually help, you know, maybe in some cases form and support groups? Because, you know, that could often be, you know, when we talk about fan engagement and we talk about it, you know, mostly we're going to always, we're going to mostly look at it at the club level, but, you know, there are other, there are other relationships, might be with the fed, Federation itself, it might be with um, the League Association or, or, or the company that runs the league. Sure. So is there, is there a sense that that might be something that develops and that these collective, this collective of people at clubs begin to create a more collective group of, of representatives nationally? I would hope so. Um, I haven't been very active with the Independent Supporters Council. That's the the kind of the, the council of supporters groups of ultras groups. That that's who they that's who the their primary membership is. Um, they have tried to do some of those sorts of things, but you know what's important to ultras groups tends to be a little bit more of a narrow focus than maybe what's important to like our fan alliance in Seattle, which is where we're trying to all the fans. Um, I think there's a need for it. Uh, We've had initial conversations with different people scattered about to form something along the lines of a a supporters direct um, or or FSA, FSE type of a group, you know, that we have, uh, that we've seen or SD Europe. Um, I do think that, uh, I think the ISC basically is like the, 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 the groups here in, in Europe and the UK that tend to focus more on the day-to-day immediate treatment of supporters and ultras. And there's no bigger group that's helping to, okay, how do we do supporters trusts? How do we do fan ownership? How do we do more fan engagement and, and try to encourage clubs or the league to have a, a board of directors or a board of advisors and give somebody a seat on that board? I think it'd be great. I think it would be huge if they do that. I think that they might be ready for it after they get through the exiting of the COVID crisis and their next labor issues. Right now, uh, MLS is, is, is headed for labor trouble because everybody's out of money because of COVID. Um, you know, being a league that, that depends very heavily on, on attendance in person, uh, COVID has been obviously as harsh as it is for everybody else in the world outside of the big five. Um, my faculty advisor, I, I took a master's here at the, uh, Valencia's um, business school. And he, he pointed out to me, he said, you know, Paul, he says, the big five leagues here are as much a media property as they are a sporting endeavor at this point. And that's why there's so much pressure for them because if they can just get back playing and get on TV, well, they're going to make a significant portion of their revenues. Whereas basically every other league from the championship on down in the UK and everybody outside of the big five, you know, we need people in the stands. So I think that right now for the next year, year and a half, exiting that will be our our priority in the U.S. And then hopefully we'll be ready for something to grow up. You know, nature abhors a vacuum, right?
enjoyed that edition of the Fan Engagement Chat with Paul Cox. Coming up on the pod, we've got new editions of Baz Chat with Baz Schneider. We're going to be focusing on the front end of fan engagement, and we've just recorded one about fan journey mapping out soon, plus more editions of Did They Ask the Fans with some big guests in the pipeline. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. It really does help our visibility in a very busy podcasting world. And go to fanengagement.net for more on Think Fan Engagement. Yeah, yeah, yeah.